We are proud members of the Spy Podcast Network. Find out more at www.spypodcasts.com. Secrets and Spies present Espresso Martini. Welcome, everybody, to episode three of Espresso Martini with myself, Chris Carr, and Matt Fulton. Matt, how are you? And welcome to the show. Doing good. Doing good. Glad to be back. Excellent. Well, it's good to have you back on. So today we have a jam-packed episode. November, a bit like October, was a very busy month and in the world of espionage, geopolitics, and intrigue. And so today we're going to kick things off looking at the Crimean Bridge explosion that happened on the 8th of October 2022, just in case anybody listens to this in a couple of years and they don't know which year it was, the explosion was a result of an attack conducted by Ukrainian forces. And the New York Times have done an excellent special covering that attack titled How Ukraine Blew Up the Bridge by James Glanz and Marco Hernandez. Um, So just quick key points from the article. So uh, the attack took place at 6.07 a.m. and it was timed during a low traffic period. The attacks either killed four people and it was a critical moment for the war. It dealt an embarrassing blow to Vladimir Putin because that bridge had been a sort of prestige project and it had been a critical strategic asset and kind of potent symbol for its connection to Crimea. The bridge was despised by Ukrainians and there were huge celebrations after the attack. Russia quickly restored rail and road traffic after the explosion, but uh, satellite images taken by a company called Planet indicated that large sections of the roadway were still missing. After the attack, there was a lot of speculation of how it was done and by whom. Uh, everything from drone ships to suicide bombers to rogue FSB officers have been blamed for the attack. Explosive experts who've reviewed the imagery of the blast agreed that the damage was most likely caused by a truck bomb, as Ukrainian officials have said, rather than a missile fired by a boat beneath the bridge. Even though when, I don't know how you found this, Matt, but when looking at the CCTV, um, it's weird because I look at the truck and then there's this sort of explosion. I kind of, I don't know why I feel like I need to see the explosion coming from the trucks. I'm so primed from all these movies I watch. But I think with a CCTV camera, because it's such a bright flash, it kind of overexposes the image. But it kind of still, I don't know, it looks like the explosion is still sort of coming from underneath. So it's, uh, yeah, it's an interesting one, that one. And the BBC also, in the early days after the attack, kind of showed some images of boats underneath the bridge just as the explosion went off. So, um, Matt, you, you picked this article out. What were your What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, to your point about the... Uh the source of the explosion i mean it definitely seems to look i'm i'm watching a clip of the cctv footage right now uh it's embedded in the new york times article and it on on the one side like you see the truck going up the span of the bridge and then it detonates and then on the other side it's sort of like a split screen the section of cctv footage that's pointing down at like the pylons under the bridge from the rail bridge that goes parallel to the roadway and it it does look like there's some movement in the water in like the second before the explosion. And I think I, I recall when this first happened, there was a lot of talk online about, you know, some sort of a an underwater drone or something, mm. you know, um, mm. that could have caused it. So I don't know. I mean, it 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 
does sort of just from what they have here look like it was a a vehicle born IED, a VBIED that 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 did it. Um, but uh, what what sort of struck me is is how it was done. I mean, so the implication that this New York Times article is is getting at if the if it if the bomb was delivered by a truck was that it would have been a suicide bomber behind the wheel, you know, because it, it talks about how where the bomb went off. It was sort of just before just before the roadway arcs up into the span that shipping would pass under, right? Um, and if if the truck had gone on for another minute or two before detonating, it would have affected some of the expansion joints that could have brought down that whole section of the roadway and totally severed the bridge. I mean, right now there's one section of the roadway leading into Crimea that's down in the sea and the resulting explosion damaged a fuel train that was on the adjacent bridge uh and that went up in flames but yeah if if so the logic is that if it if it it's if it was a suicide bomber behind the wheel and to be clear we don't we don't know yeah there isn't much information no and i even looked outside this article and couldn't find i mean yeah there's tons of like use of speculation but in terms of like actual information as to if it was a suicide bomber we don't know but if there, if if there was a suicide bomber behind the wheel you think they would have waited a, another minute or two before detonating to you know really damage the bridge so it's the question of was there a suicide bomber behind the wheel or did the person driving the truck not know that there was a bomb in it mm. Which to me, the interesting question, I mean, either either scenario is interesting to me that, you know, the Ukrainians would use a, a live human being, you know, committing suicide as a tactic. Because that's more synonymous with the Middle East, unfortunately, because the Iran-Iraq war back in the 80s where that tactic kind of started, really. Yeah, I mean, it's it's famously you know, culturally now. Yeah, like to your point, mm. we really associate it with with is. Islamic sort of based terrorism, right? It has mm. a sort of religious kind of connotation and undertone to it that that allows these people to be motivated to kill themselves for a greater yeah. cause, which would be their religion or something. Mm. Um, mm. But I mean, that's not that's not always been the case. You know, look at Japanese kamikaze pilots during World yeah. War II, you know, yeah. where that's rooted in sort of a, a cultural nationalism kind of thing. I can certainly see that being the case among some in the ranks of the Ukrainian armed forces right now. You know, you're talking about a a war for their national mm. survival. Mm. Mm. You know, I mean, yeah, you definitely sort of have those passions, those emotions that come up in this situation that would lead someone to volunteer to drive a bomb over a bridge and set it off. The other question then for me is the, I want to be careful with how I phrase this here, because mm -hmm. I don't want to suggest that the U.S. or other Western intelligence services are, like, directing the Ukrainians to do this. Mm. But an attack of this scale, I mean, we're talking about the Kerch Strait Bridge, which is, like, the sole land route between mainland Russia and Crimea, right? Mm. Huge mm. strategic symbolic target, which is why Putin went nuts and has been lobbing cruise missiles into Ukrainian cities since then, right? Basically, explicitly as revenge for this attack. So if the Ukrainians were going after that high level of a target, it it mm. it sort of belies my expectations that we wouldn't at least be aware that it was happening to some degree. I'm not saying like we would 
provide the training or or the technical expertise to get it done but it's mm-hmm. it's hard for me to believe that that we wouldn't know in advance to some degree so then if we do if we did purely for conversations point if we did know in advance mm-hmm. that the ukrainians are going to hit this bridge how do we sitting at langley or vauxhall cross you know how do we feel about the ukrainians employing suicide bombers yeah. You know, yeah. I know we definitely would not feel okay about sending someone over this bridge with a bomb in the truck that they weren't aware of, you know. Mm. Um to me that's an interesting moral ethical question that you know how would western intelligence services uh feel about yeah. this kind of a thing, you know? I mean, we have yeah. sort of lines in in the sand that we don't cross, mm. you know, like I mean mm. famously the mm. CIA has policies where they won't use journalists or clergy or medical workers as agents or as unofficial cover, you know, because that sort of seems like you don't want to sully those businesses, mm, those people. Those people in risk, yeah. Right. It, it makes everyone target. So we, we mm. uh, there are some exceptions where that rule has been bent, but generally we stay away from that, you know. Mm. And I think employing suicide bombers would be one of those things that would be a real uh, something that we had we have issue with even if there are ukrainians in their armed forces and their security services who are willing to do it i think that would still give us pause and that's what's so interesting about this to me the question of you know was there someone behind the wheel who did this and it seems like there was Hmm. and it's interesting that usually well when with suicide bombing in the middle east they usually Mm -hmm. then celebrate the bomber um yes and they're hailed as a hero and there's none of that um, no. It's just a mystery, um, which is a bit. Do you know my my uh, my spider? I'm still not 100 convinced it was a truck bombing, but I'm I'm not an expert. I wonder if this is all cover for for you know the Ukrainians maybe having um, underwater drone technology or something that could have done it, or it was or the or it was some sort of weird special ops mission where they rigged explosives under the bridge somehow. But right. I could be completely wrong there. It just I don't know, because the suicide attacks are so rare, right. almost non existent in because there haven't been any other suicide attacks this style in the Ukrainian war that we know of, or as far as I know of. Obviously there might be missions that you know, lead to mass death or people might participate in a mission yeah. not knowing if they're going to come back or not. But they haven't somebody isn't getting into a truck and laden with explosives and then going over a bridge. It's a bit odd. The other question then is whether the the other slightly icky one is whether they planted a bomb in some guy's truck. Um and unbeknown to the truck driver, they were driving along with um, you know, quite yeah. a lot of explosives. But yeah. the the only thing slightly against that is I believe the the sheer volume of explosives in the truck would have been hard to hide from someone, I suspect. But yeah, yeah. So it's a very bizarre one. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, what you said sort of brings to mind in the early days of the war the stories about mm. was that the ghost of Kiev, a Ukrainian mm. MiG oh, yes. yeah. fighter pilot who was you know single handedly defending the skies over Kiev, which I think turned out to be. Sort of, you know, like an urban legend, there wasn't a singular yeah. fighter pilot who was no, still, you know, no. fending off the Russian Air Force. But, you know, a story like that or the defenders of Snake Island, you know, Russian warship, go fuck yourself. You know, sorry for the explicit <laughs> label no, no, of this podcast good. now. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, uh, this story that came out early in the war that yeah. turned out to not be entirely true. I think some of the people mm. on Snake Island survived the Russian yeah. attack. Yeah, they did. They were kept prisoner, weren't they? Yeah. But these stories that, you know, 
galvanize the national psyche yeah. uh, that you think if there was a a Ukrainian soldier or someone from the Ukrainian security forces who is who volunteered to do this, yeah, I, I think the Ukrainians would have some sort of benefit in coming out and saying, this is who this person is. Mm. Aren't they a hero? In the same yeah. way that, yeah, suicide bombers in the Middle East happens all the time. Mm. On the alternative, if the truck was some sort of a cover for a underwater drone, I mean, I think the Ukrainians have demonstrated, even in the last couple of months, uh, pretty adept abilities in that area. I mean, there's been, uh, there was a really great video of an attack on the Russian naval base in uh, Sevastopol. Oh, um, yes. That yes, was an underwater yeah. drone. And you can mm. see it. It's it's it. It looks crazy. This this video. But it's it's from the drone, which is down like almost under the waterline. It looks like one mm. of like those drug submarines, you know, that like you would catch in the Caribbean. Yes. The good old narco subs. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. 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 <laughs> it, 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 it looks like one of those. And it's just like right on the waterline. And you see these Russian MIA helicopter gunships flying overhead trying to take this thing out and you know like you see bullets going into the water and stuff around it so they're definitely capable of this kind of thing mm. yeah it's it's the other interesting point to me is the truck was coming mm. from i don't I, I don't know if this if this proves either way or, or suggests mm. something more either way mm. but it's interesting to me that to, that that the truck was coming from krasnodar from mainland russia not from crimea I mean, they definitely, the Ukrainians certainly have cells operating inside Russia. I mean, yeah, um, because there's been some sabotage attacks, haven't there, and other things. Dugan's daughter, Mm. the car bombing Mm. that killed Alexander Dugan's daughter a while ago. Um, I feel, going back to my thought that if it was, or or thought if it was an underwater drone attack, then I think the likelihood that, like, JSOC the Joint Special mm. Operations Command or mm. the British Special Boat Service or something will, were more operationally involved if that was mm. the case. Mm. One other interesting thing, just in the, the BBC article that's um, published like the day after, a few days after the attack, where they, they mentioned the underwater drones, they quote a Ukrainian official, Mikhail Podilak, who was the head of President Zelensky's office, and he claimed the explosion was caused by a truck but it was due to infighting between the FSB and Russian military contractors. So that's another interesting little spin on it. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, we'll go into it a little bit. There's been reports of infighting in the FSB, and certainly a, a spooky contact of me off air speculated that there could well be some sort of FSB involvement with the bridge attack. So, yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting one, that one. Um, whether they were trying to do like a... I hate to use the phrase now because it gets misquoted so often, but a false flag sort of yeah. operation where they were trying to blow something up to blame it on the ukrainians um i'm not convinced that is the case but it's an interesting thing and the fact that that ukrainian official kind of tried to kind of claim that but i think again that might be some sort of psyops uh trying to make the russians think that they can't trust each other i don't know it's an interesting if one. i remember correctly after the attack putin gave the fsb charged the fsb with security over the bridge mm. Mm. um they were not in charge of security over the bridge beforehand i believe that was the border guards in 10 to 15 years from now Mm. someone's going to write the definitive history of Western intelligence services sort of working behind the scenes during this war, and it's going to win all the Pulitzers. Yeah, and I hope that person will be a guest on this show. Unless we write that book. I don't know. Yes. (laughs) Maybe we need to get working on it. Maybe. (laughs) Work those contacts. 
Yeah. No, it, it's there's there is so much going on here that we don't know. I mean, you see fires at all kinds mm. of Russian industrial facilities all over the country. And it's not it's not even in like Belgorod and stuff like right over the Ukrainian border. We're talking stuff happening in Moscow, in St. Petersburg, way out in the Russian Far East, you know, uh, multiple time zones away from Ukraine where this stuff is happening. Um, there is a very large, concerted, covert effort to bring the war to Russian doorsteps that mm. we don't know about right now. And to be honest, we yeah. shouldn't know about right now. Um, yeah. but one day in the future, that story will definitely be told. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be a very interesting one. One last note after the attack, the Russian security services put out a famous X-ray of a truck, but that X-ray does not match the truck on the bridge. Um, so that was a, that was a funny little extra tidbit to this story that, uh, struck, um, popped out <laughs> that might lend some credence to your uh russian infighting theory mm. if they can't even get their story straight yeah you never know it's an interesting one there definitely appears to be some sort of infighting going on in russia as we'll ch chat about in a minute yeah it's the thing with these events they're always open to a lot of speculation and there's healthy speculation and unhealthy speculation yeah um so i'm hoping we stay on the healthy side of speculation with it i think we are so <laughs> <laughs> yeah they were doing pretty good <laughs> it certainly wasn't a, an alien beam weapon or something like that so <laughs> No, not a Jewish no. space laser. No, no. Coverage. Apparently they're quite popular these days. <laughs> they are. They are over here, yeah. yeah. Oh, dear. Well, talk about FSB infighting. So there's a great article titled Civil War Among Putin Allies by Isabel Van Bruggen from Newsweek. And apparently there's a whistleblower in the FSB who's been leaking emails that reveal a civil war going on among Putin allies, as well as anger and discontent within the ranks of the FSB. So <laughs> maybe there are bridge bombers in the uh, ranks of the FSB. Who knows? Um, and this whist whistleblower has been dubbed the winds of change. And uh, this whistleblower sends regular email reports to a Russian exile called Vladimir Oseshkin. Oseshkin is a Russian human rights activist who runs an anti-corruption website called gulagu.net. And in Winds of Change's most recent email, I'm assuming it must be coming to a conclusion, these emails, because there's an article about it now, but his most recent, or his or hers most recent email from November, they detail inner turmoil and conflict within the Kremlin, predicting an inevitable civil war, and that Russia will soon descend into the abyss of terror as people grow increasingly tired of the war. The whistleblower then focuses on Yevgeny Prizgorsin, who's a Putin ally and founder of the mercenary outfit, the Wagner Group. And um, so, yes, there's been, he's sort of been recently seen as a potential successor to Putin, uh, which may or may not be making Putin nervous and may or may not um, mean his life might be coming to a swift conclusion soon, um, especially if he gets offered a dodgy cup of tea. So <laughs> there's definitely something going on um, within the uh, FSB and the sort of top level of the Kremlin. So Matt, did you have any sort of thoughts on, on that at all? Uh, yeah, I, I think the important thing here is to keep in mind, like, when when this whistleblower sort of talks about a quote-unquote inevitable civil war it's mm. sort of important to define what one means by the term civil war yeah. i mean like you've seen there were images posted in sort of the earlier days of the war that sort of talked about areas that are like culturally quote-unquote russian mm. like areas around moscow and mm. then mm. farther east into the urals and stuff that are more ethnic minorities yeah 
Um, and sort of talks about, you know, this is Russia and this is not Russia, basically calling that saying that the Russian Federation should be broken up. I think that is such insane wish casting. Like, I mean, I I've explained this to friends of mine who've asked about it. And I like I said, the balkanization of the Russian Federation would be a geopolitical catastrophe, the likes of which I don't think we've seen since like the 19th century um it, it's not something that anyone wants i mean no. you, you might think you want the big russian baddies to go away but you don't want russian splintering into an open civil war yeah that would be a complete nightmare for everyone involved and there are enough 90s movies that show us why that's a bad thing yes exactly you know but but if we're talking about a civil war between between the security services, the 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 Siloviki, as they're known inside Russia, I mean, I think as as the war continues to not go well for Putin, mm. and you see a lot of people in these inner circles, like Evgeny Prigozhin, who's you know famously called Putin's chef, mm. who runs mm. the Wagner Group of mercenaries. Yeah. yeah. Um. I mean, this is a guy who has been going around a lot to Russian prisons and recruiting people to come and 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 fight for this mercenary group in Ukraine. Really mm. crazy stuff. I mean, even by the standards of like Putin crazy, this guy's pretty pretty nuts. Yeah. Um but yeah. but yeah, in 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 the way he has publicly presented himself at a lot of these pro Russian rallies in the country over the past couple of months, it sort of suggested a I don't want to say a presidential campaign, but it had those kind of a trappings, mm, those mm, those kinds of trappings mm. that someone who was looking to to position themselves as a possible successor to Putin, if something unfortunate were to befall him in the future, either a coup or some sort of a medical event or or whatever, mm. um, he could be a, a possible alternative. And I mean, if there's something you want to not be in Russia, you would think it's a plausible challenge to you know putin's putin's reign no no it doesn't end well no it does not <laughs> i mean I, the other thing to consider here is that there's no set procedure of what happens in russia mm. if putin is out of the picture i mean there's no set line of succession there's no protocol for that i mean i dealt with this in active measures mm. in the first volume of that series and i'm sort of still dealing with it in 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 writing the second sort of seeing hypothetically you know the ultra powerful strongman russian president if he suddenly disappears what happens afterwards and and it 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 gets pretty it would it would get pretty ugly and putin's created that situation because am i yes. right when he came to power back in was it 1999 wasn't it um early 2000s he he obviously over time changed the constitution so he can now because he was only supposed to be yeah. a two-term president and that term, two terms have gone on a very long time now uh, with a brief yeah. interlude and you know at the moment he's set for being president till he drops dead um and this is one of the other motivations of that whistleblower the winds have changed because they were quite distressed by the fact that there is no clear line of succession there is no sort of democracy good or bad in russia um and they only see a negative outcome um which you know is not hard it's hard not to see a negative outcome because i was i've been speculating this myself privately just thinking um that if if you do end up in a situation where it russia 
becomes uh, gets into a civil war. The the scary scenario, which again is from these nineties movies, is the nuclear weapon yeah. question and who gets yeah. hold of them. You know, you've got a situation where there's going to be a lot of people who are probably not going to get paid for a while, who might start selling stuff, um, or you know. So yeah, it, it's sort of becoming the sum of all fears again. So it's uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it sort of reminds me of what you know was it Louis said during the French Revolution after me the deluge you know and i think as 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 despotic and and truly evil putin is there is at least undeniably one person in charge of that country and sometimes that there is a silver lining in that you know we've the the pentagon to the defense threat reduction agency the dtra has spent a lot of money since the 90s since the fall of the soviet mm, union mm, mm. ensuring the security of russian nuclear weapon systems so just like that you know i mean like we have so let's say there was a coup in pakistan this is a concern uh back in the 2000s after 9 11 if there was an islamist coup in pakistan mm. you know jsoc had contingency plans on the shelf to jump in and seize Pakistan's nuclear arsenal. Like there's a there's a video clip of a little bird helicopter, very small helicopter, landing on top of a uh, semi-trailer mm. for an exercise. And like, you wonder what that's for. That's to seize Pakistan's nuclear weapons if there was a coup. But their arsenal is small enough that that can sort of be managed in an operation. But you're talking with Russia, thousands of warheads spread across this vast country. I don't know how we keep a lid on that. And the nuclear submarines, um, you know, with a a conversation with a pacifist friend of mine who's now become quite up for just sending one nuke to Russia. Um, It's like, yeah, that's a really good idea. Um, And, um, you know, one will be fine. No, it won't, (laughs) because there'll be a retaliation. Um, Yeah, because it'll definitely just stop at one. Yeah, exactly. And and so, um, (laughs) oh, gosh, bless them. But, uh, yeah, so to my point to them was one of the issues with the nuclear weapons is you've got all these subs, the deterrents at sea out there, and we have them too, hence why we, Mm -hmm. there's this continual argument every few years about the future of Trident that comes up and a lot of people kind of on the left side of the political spectrum really hate Trident and think we don't need it and um, about sort of 10 years, 11 years ago uh, during a general election was it Nick Clegg who was uh, up for being Prime Minister at the time and he became the Deputy Prime Minister um, he famously said we don't need Trident anymore because the only threat is terrorism um, and it's like well there's no such thing as a singular threat and and you know thank God he wasn't really Prime Minister and Trident did manage to yeah. continue its funding because I think now we live in the world where we really do need that nuclear deterrent because we want to dissuade people from leading using them But um, but there we go so yeah, so I think there there are subs out there right now that have Russia's nuclear arsenal on them. Yep. And one thing Putin has done well, because Russian forces have been recently seen as a bit clapped out and ill-equipped and there's a lot of corruption. But the one thing he does seem to have done really well with is the submarine service, mm-hmm. partly because of um, when he became president, he had the Kursk disaster um, as one of his early things. And also he had a, a relative of his who was in the submarine service. And probably Putin understands the, you know, the significance of gunboat diplomacy and submarines and the way to do it these days. So I believe um, the submarine service is in pretty good nick. And they've got the Belgorod, which can send out these sort of small submarines that can do special missions and probably likes Nord Stream pipelines and other things, too. So... (laughs) 
<laughs> so yeah, so I, we should never under yeah. underestimate Russian nuclear weapons and 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 the submarine services of of the world. So yeah, so scary stuff really. Um, because this is this is the thing that always freaked me out about the war in Ukraine, and and then with it going so badly for Putin, is it kind of there is no guarantee of a logical conclusion or an orderly conclusion because I think we are maybe like because of World War Two and stuff, it's still a part in the popular kind of imagination of like this sense of orderly endings um and obviously politicians probably work very hard to try and create an orderly ending to things but in reality they generally aren't wars are usually just abandoned and uh, <laughs> and then uh, express themselves in different ways later you think of that that line from apocalypse now one day this war is going to end you know i mean that's mm. true of every war mm. one day it's it's going to end and you think at the end of it there will still be a Russian Federation sharing a very large border with Ukraine. You know, like these two mm, countries mm, have mm. to exist side by side. And I'm not saying this to get in like some kumbaya. Can we all just get along? Like, that's not my point here. But it's just the reality that however this war is going to end, like it, it's like the U.S. and Canada right there next to each other. You know, um, it, it, they have to exist in the same space. Mm. Um, so how you, how you find an end where that happens and yeah, often wars don't end. They just, they just stop, um, or they go into some sort of a frozen sort of twilight world in between, which is sort of how, how much of Eastern Ukraine was until mm. last February. Yeah. Well, I'm going to, I'll spring something up quickly because, um, I got a bit of a bollocking in one of my reviews recently, um, because I expressed a concern about how post the war, post, um, was this for the podcast? Yeah. Yeah. So post the war, uh, post, um, hopefully some sort of, uh, judicial process that holds Russians to account for what they've done. And I maybe didn't make that clear in the episode where I got a bollocking, but, um, um, I, I'm concerned slightly that, if the war, one conclusion to the war is, you know, Russia's defeated, the international community kind of get involved and there's some sort of process and Russia have to pay um, reparations for the damages that they've caused, and rightly so. But we don't want to end up repeating the mistake of World War One. We don't want then, right, because Putinism, I think, is one of the key things that's been bubbling away yes. for the last 20 years. And we, the international community needs to find a way, because Putinism in a way is sort of saying that the West is all evil and constantly trying to undermine Russia. And the problem is, if we, yeah, we've already given them a whole load of sanctions, um, but if they have 20 years of just pure sanctions it could end up in a kind of yeah. world war ii situation again like a nazi germany yeah. again now one could yeah. argue we're kind of in nazi germany with them now but i think it could get worse um and there needs to be some sort of way to bring kind of russia post the war post justice back into the international fold in a positive way because otherwise this will happen yes. again there'll be more death more destruction more potential world war three apocalyptic scenarios so i hope i've made that clearer now um in my fear yeah. because uh that person who uh left that comment i'm sorry I, I i didn't make it clear enough but i was speculating because i'm concerned for the future um because i don't want to see this happen again and it probably will yeah no <laughs> you you mm. You think about a situation like, like your point, you know, Weimar Germany after World mm, War One, mm. that you know the 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 ruling the the winning powers of World War One just ran Germany into the ground through reparations, force surrender of its overseas colonial territories, 
Um, and and yeah, absolutely sort of created that that situation within Germany that that allowed Nazism to flourish mm. in the same way. I mean, I think you also just don't want a situation in Russia like we had at the end of the Cold War, mm. you know, where where the central government just collapses yeah. and the whole country is just looted by gangsters for 10 years until a former KGB spy comes along and says, Hey, I'm going to get rid of these guys for you, and I'm going to bring order to the country. But you know, you're not going to have any democratic sort of rights. You want to avoid that situation as well. I mean, honestly, I think we should have had in the '90s, early '90s, we should have had a Marshall Plan for mm. the former Soviet space. Yeah, I was going to say the same um, thing. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. And that is a unique, a a a very unique missed opportunity mm. that that we did not do more to bring the former Soviet space into the club of prosperous democratic western yeah. nations like like we did with east germany yeah. after reunification yeah um so we need to you know post justice post all the things that need to be done but they do need to somebody yes. somewhere needs to think about how to bring russia back into the fold in a positive way so this doesn't happen again but yeah and i think we also need to set our expectations realistically mm. i mean mm. there's a lot of people on twitter who are all about sort of you know stringing putin up by a lamppost and mm. as lovely as that would be to see mm. like you have to be realistic about what this war is going to look like when yeah. it eventually ends yeah. you know like are there scores of russian officers who who deserve to be dragged into the hague yeah, yeah. absolutely are we ever going to see them there no, no. well how we didn't even see all the nazis tried did we <laughs> Some of them, right. even, no, some of them yeah. went on to help with the rocket program and other things too. So right, right, right. Mm. Yeah, they end up in in Syria and stuff. Mm. Um, yeah, just the idea that you will see senior Russian leaders, or I would say any leaders for that matter, brought to justice in the Hague in that sort of a nice tied off way. That yes, justice has been done. Mm. It's not going to happen, and that's not to say that I. I wish that was not the case. Mm. You know, they deserve to be brought to justice in yeah. that matter. Yeah. But it's not going to happen. We're not talking about the former Yugoslavia. We're not mm. talking about some small sub-Saharan African country. We're talking about the largest country in the world with thousands of nuclear warheads. Yeah, and this can't be underestimated. And again, to that uh, review I got, um, you know, unfortunately, superpowers can't be ignored. I know it's no. sometimes we overly focus on superpowers, but there's a reason for that because... They possess nuclear weapons and they have a lot of influence. And generally, nine times out of ten, most regional intrigue um, usually goes back to a superpower, whether it be America, uh, China or Russia, or even some of the Middle Eastern sort of, um, you know, uh, whether it be Iran or Saudi Arabia. Usually one of those key countries has its sort of... Uh, has some sort of influence on some of the events that are going on in some way or another, usually. So, uh, so yeah. So no, I, I, yeah, I agree with you, Matt. I think um, I, I, as much as I'd love to see Putin hang, um, and you know, he might. It might be a civil war. Who knows? He might. Um, he might. You know, or there might be some sort of way where there's a, a more positive president in Russia, and somehow part of one of the deals for, I don't know, reintegrating Russia is that Putin has to be tried in the Hague. It could happen, but and we'd love to see it, but you know, I don't know if it will happen. So, yeah. <laughs> here's here's my prediction, real mm. quick, and then maybe we can move on. Okay, cool. My prediction is if Putin is hung from a lamppost one day. And I think the chances are he will sort of live out the rest of his days in a dacha yeah. along the Black Sea. But if he is hung from a lamppost one day, 
it will not be by our hand. It will be because Russians did it themselves. Yeah. That's yeah. the only way it's going to happen. Yeah, and it's the way it should happen, really. So, yeah. Yeah. To be honest. Yeah, definitely. Because otherwise, again, blowback. <laughs> the yep. more the more superpowers do influence local events, usually the more blowback that comes in the end somewhere at some point and somebody else has to pay for it. So, yeah. So it's better that Russians do it and uh, and then maybe it can become some sort of warning to future generations. But there we go. <laughs> yeah. So um, we'll continue on a little bit of our Russian theme. Um, yes. There's a really great story that was in Yahoo News by Michael Weiss, who I admire greatly and I would love to get him he's on the great. podcast. And he, he's, he's, he's yeah. so smart. He is. Honestly, I've been emailed with years. him before. Oh, have you? Oh, cool, cool. God, yeah, I've, I, yeah, I'd love to get him on the show. I've tried emailing him about this article, but I haven't heard anything yet. So, Michael, if you're listening... He's very busy. Good. Yeah, no, he is. Honestly, yeah. you know that guy. Um, yeah, he's he's really on it. If you want to, if you want to find somebody who really, apart from Bellingcat, if you want to see somebody who's really on the tales of Russian intelligence, Michael Weiss is the man to check out. And he got exclusive access recently via Yahoo News to chat with a um, former Russian GRU officer called Artem. Zinchenko? Did I get that right? Artem Zinchenko? That's a rather easier yes. Russian name than some of the others. Um, <laughs> <laughs> my Russian's a bit rusty these days. Um, anyway, so so he, he did an, uh, an exclusive interview with this defector and intelligence officers in Estonia who helped him defect. And the article was a great profile on the Estonian intelligence officer who originally arrested Zinchenko and eventually turned him. If you want to find a real-life George Smiley... He is currently in Estonia, yeah. and Estonia is pretty much it's pretty much been a sort of front line against Russia for some time now. It's been an awful lot of uh, Russian espionage activity, a lot of cyber attacks. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, Edward Lucas talks a lot about um, Estonia, and so yeah, with Zinchenko, he was the first Russian GIU agent to be arrested in Estonia, and then traded back to Moscow, and then years later he and defected back to the country that had arrested him, which is quite unique. Um, so, yeah, one other interesting note, Zinchenko at the time of his arrest was running a member of Estonian intelligence as a mole for the GRU. So, you know, he, he was definitely up to up to no good on behalf of the Russians. His decision to defect was as much motivated by the Kremlin's brutality at home and abroad and he has family members in Ukraine and so he again, like a few other sort of Russian intelligence officers allegedly are all quite upset about the war in Ukraine and so we are starting to see more defections probably there's probably a lot more people now um, are becoming assets for Western intelligence services because of the war in Ukraine and I hark back to my favorite Russian spy Oleg Gordievsky he he turned in 1968 after the um, clamp down the Prague Spring he was so disgusted by it as were some other intelligence officers that he um, started making moves to Danish intelligence at the time and then eventually became MI6's sort of top source in the Russian intelligence services. So, yeah, really great article. Um, and the article's titled Russian Spy Defects, Yahoo News. So it's pretty easy to find, and we'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, Matt, did anything stand out for you with this story? Yeah, this is a great breakdown here. I mean, Michael Weiss was invited just to Tallinn, uh, the capital of Estonia, yeah, lucky man. Um, by the head of Estonia's um, FBI, essentially the 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 capo, um, and was sort of given this information as like an exclusive, you know, that they had turned this GRU officer. Um, yeah, and great, and and uh, uh, compares the head of of capo to um, 
to George Smiley mm. in a great mm. uh, sort of uh, anecdote there. Um, I don't know. I mean, to your point about like Gordievsky after the Prague Spring, a lot of his, historically, I think some of the best spies have been recruited or turned after a you know unique sort of moral catastrophe by yeah. their home countries. Yeah. You know, like I'm thinking of Oleg Penkovsky, who during the Cuban Missile Crisis fed a lot of information to the CIA, which probably averted a nuclear war. Yeah, yeah all these sort of best spies historically, it, it, it happens because they become disillusioned on a deep moral level with their home countries. Mm. Um, and you definitely see that here with the Russians post-Ukraine. And I'm sure... This guy Zinchenko is is uh, not the only one. Um, he's definitely not the only one. I mean, I'm sure there's walk-ins and defections all over Western Europe that have happened since February, many of whom we don't know about. Um, and yeah, that, that's that's the that's an issue with these sort of wars of conquest that that uh, just so go beyond the pale of of what people are able to accept. That it's it's a it's it's hard to recruit people to spy for you. Like if you're the GRU, if you're yeah. the Russians, it's hard to recruit people to spy for you after this. And at the mm. same point, it's hard to keep your people from walking out the mm. door. Mm. Oh, indeed, indeed. And um, actually one other interesting thing um, just about recruitment, I mean, is it's, human intelligence is getting harder to do now because of um, biometric technology. So it makes it hard to travel undercover. Social media. Social media, facial recognition, all that sort of stuff makes it very hard. So, you know, these sort of situations do make it easier for Western intelligence when you get a walk-in. And in fact, I think I, there was years ago, I read a book by Stephen Gray, um, and it was, I can't remember what it was called now. It was a really good book. Um, and it was all about, it was sort of like a, kind of contemporary history of espionage over the last of 30 years. And there was a Cold War warrior of the CIA he was speaking to, I think it was Milt Bearden, was said that really, oh, yeah. yeah, he said most spy stories are locker room talk and the majority of spies that the West ran were walk-ins. Yep. And honestly, when you think about the smoke and mirrors world of espionage, I think you do want an ideologically motivated spy because... It probably makes them more reliable. If you compromise someone, they're probably going to try and find a way to screw you over. If you just oh, yeah. it's just financial, I don't know, then that person probably is going to want to go to other people too for money. Yeah. So if somebody's really psychologically motivated, I think that probably makes them more reliable. And I think of all the great spy stories that we've mentioned and the great spies that we mentioned, I think they've all been ideologically motivated. So there definitely is something in that, definitely. And and in fact, um, that might segue nicely, unless there's anything else you want to add to this, into just a few recent spy stories. So there's a really interesting article on the BBC at the moment by Gordon Carrera, who's the BBC security correspondent and former guest on this show and really another top person to keep an eye on on Twitter or on the BBC. So um, there's a trial going on at the... Old Bailey in London at the moment, involving a gentleman named David Smith. And David Smith was a security guard at the British Embassy in Berlin, and he was arrested in May 2020. Um, and his trial's just sort of happening now. And prosecutors said he was driven by an intense hatred for his country and angered by the flying of rainbow flags in support of the LGBTQ plus community. 
And um, so this, to me, is a guy who seems really on board with Russia's sort of stance in the world today. He just, he strikes me as somebody who was ideologically motivated to work for Russia. This individual, he was arrested uh, and he had £700 of cash in his home in Potsdam, Germany, which isn't a lot of money, but, you know. No. Um, he, the information he passed on, he didn't have access to classified or top secret information, but he did have access to CCTV and logs of people coming in and out of the embassy. And that makes it easy for Russian intelligence to identify intelligence officers working at the embassy. And so that could have helped the Russians with their operations against the embassy in Germany. So, um, yeah, it's a very interesting one, that one. I don't know, Matt, if there's anything that's struck you with that or if you have any thoughts on that case yeah again classic sort of ideological motivation of course from the inverse yeah you know we're talking about people before who get sort of turned off by russia and they spy against russia this is sort of the opposite that someone you know who um had sort of i guess i'll say right wing views mm. to the extent that they motivated him to sort of sell out his country to the Russians. I'm, I'm just quoting here. He is said to have wanted to live in Russia or Ukraine during the time he passed on secret intelligence from mm. May 2020. So, okay. I'm assuming he watched a lot of Russia today because I remember when I used to briefly watch it about 10 years ago. Russia Today is full of documentaries about America's failures in Vietnam, America's sort of failures socially, and then lots of documentaries about how pretty Russia is with lots of lovely pictures of mountains and, you know. So I wondered if he had this on a loop in the background. He was like, oh, my goodness, that mountain. Maybe I could get a, a Dutch, you know, in this wonderful Russia that's very anti... Because, um, again, you know, he seems to be very right-wing, and I could speculate to say he's probably anti-woke because this is sort of an anti-woke hysteria that's been online for a good few years now. Um, yeah. And I suspect that this individual, Mr. Smith, is probably very much into into that online hysteria against progressive values and things. Yeah. So he is on trial at the Old Bailey yeah. right now. That's it. And faces a maximum of 14 years in prison for mm. violations of the Official Secrets Act. Mm. Now, in fact, in comparison to Americans, that's quite a light sentence because in the US, they end up in a supermax, sometimes in solitary confinement, usually for 25 plus years. That's where Robert Hansen is. Yeah. Uh, Colorado Supermax, um, which is essentially like a dungeon. Mm. Uh, you don't want to go there. No, no. Um, you'd almost argue the death penalty might be nicer. <laughs> but I don't probably, know. <laughs> there's some U.S. prisons are really not good. Mm. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah, Robert Hansen, I know is 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 in uh, Florence Supermax right now uh, for for the rest of his life. Mm. Um, arguably probably where snowden would go if he was brought back here um yeah kind of a yeah it strikes me as 14 years is a bit of a lesser yeah that's definitely way yeah. less than he would face here we sort of we put you away for a while yeah i don't think in the uk we have a brilliant track record with regards to um imprisoning traitors that <laughs> we either let them go or give them really weak ass sentences usually but I'm not I'm not saying I mean for 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 the for the record I'm mm. not saying that this guy should be put away for the rest of his life. I don't have a particular feeling on either way. British magistrates can do with this what they should under British law. Mm. Um but but yeah. Yeah. It does seem kind of light, but <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but there we go. <laughs> um 
on uh, more Russian espionage, we see, I think today's theme is now that um, two Swedish brothers have been charged <laughs> for spying for Russia. Um, and um, they've been spying for Russia for over 10 years. Um, it was two brothers, one uh, Payman Kia, 42 years old, and then Payam Kia, the younger brother, 35 years old. And they've been passing secrets to the Russian military intelligence service, the GRU. And uh, one of the brothers was trying to destroy a hard drive as the other brother was arrested. So that's a really, uh, <laughs> really good move. That's that. not good. You don't want to no. get caught doing that. No, no. As the police break down the door. <laughs> no, exactly. And I heard the arrest was quite dramatic and involved helicopters and stuff. There was some stuff on Twitter about it and things. Yeah. So it's been, it's quite an interesting one. So I, I mean, 10 years as a mole was a long time. Um, and I'm imagining they've done quite a lot of damage because they were, you know, really quite senior in Swedish security services in the early days of their career. And I do wonder whether they had access to information that's been shared from allied intelligence services. So, yeah, it's it's an intriguing one, that one. So that's a story that will probably, you know, be developing over time. So keep an eye out for that one. But uh, Matt, was there anything you wanted to add to that? Or? No, just again, yeah, another another situation in the last couple of months of, of Russian spies getting getting rolled up. I mean, yeah, in, in the next 10 to 15 years, there is going to be a massive 700-page book. I'm thinking about that book on Mossad, Rise and Kill First, that's yeah. right over my shoulder back here. 700 pages long, whole chronicle of the history of the Mossad. We're going to have something like that about Western intelligence efforts against the Russians during the war in Ukraine, and it's going to be astounding, and it's going to be full of stuff like this and a lot of stuff that we don't even know about. I'm going to make a bet now. Michael Weiss will be writing it. Yeah. there. I think. I think there will be... I think there will be a race to get several. Mm. I mean, you yeah. think like after the Bin Laden raid, oh yeah, there were several sort of competing books. Mm. Mm. Um, but one of them will one of them will stand out. Someone who, yeah, I don't know if you're getting invited to Tallinn by the head of Estonian intelligence, mm. you, you probably have some good contacts. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, I just wanted to quickly chat about these PIs that have been hired by uh, China and Iran in America. Because uh, in the UK at the moment, we've um, had the head of MI5 just gave a speech where he outlined there'd been 10 plots involving kidnapping and death threats to Iranians in the UK from the Iranian intelligence services. And then there's another article that just recently came out with the New York Times about how China and Iran have been hiring American private investigators to spy on dissidents in the US. So pretty much the title says what happened there. Um so there's a private investigator called Michael McKeever, who was un who unwittingly hired to watch an Iranian dissonance, and unknown to him, the FBI were also watching this person, and the FBI then contacted Mr. McKeever to say that his clients were not who they thought they were, and went on to say that they're bad people and they're up to no good. And the FBI have now issued an alert to private investigators across America to warn them about how um, they could potentially be hired by hostile intelligence services, Chinese and Iranian in particular. So, um, yeah, this, that, that kind of follows in quite nicely with what we were talking about last month with these sort of secret Chinese police stations that were popping up. So, yeah, so I don't know, Matt, was there anything you had any thoughts on with that? But I, I thought that was quite an interesting story, that one. Yeah, this it, it reminds me of what we talked about, about the Chinese police stations. It mm. also honestly reminds me of the former RAF pilots oh yeah Chinese fighter pilots yeah um you know to the extent that like should American nationals be allowed to basically act as subcontractors for Chinese and Iranian intelligence I think no I mean I think this sort of seems the the, the article reads like they were basically giving these PIs 
a defensive briefing, mm. you know, which is to mm. like pull them aside and be mm. like, so for listeners, a defensive briefing is like if you're being targeted by a foreign intelligence service, either for recruitment or blackmail, coercion, some kind of thing like that, and you're unaware of it, yeah. you know, like you're not cooperating with them. You don't you don't even know uh, the FBI will pull you aside for a defensive briefing and say, hey, just so you want to know, just just so you know, we've collected this information that, you know, X hostile country mm. is out for you in this regard and be careful. Um, I, I, I think Trump was given one of these defensive briefings during the 2016 campaign. And famously, we know how that went. Yeah, I think Comey gave it to him. Yeah. Right. So this seems to me kind of like the same thing. It's like this line here. Your client is not who you think they are. The mm. agent said, according to Mr. McKeever, they are bad people and they're up to no good. So I'm sure it's not someone, a, a clear Chinese intelligence officer who's approaching you and saying, Hey, do you want to spy for the Ministry of mm. State Security mm. against no. Chinese dissidents? No. It, there's various levels of intermediaries mm. and stuff. Um, but 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 yeah, I mean, what I thought of like with the former RAF pilots training the Chinese, it's it's something that is not illegal under the letter of the law, but it's one of those things that like it should be. Yeah. And it feels like it will be in the future. Because of this stuff, it's like, okay, you you as a private investigator have to do your due diligence mm, to know mm. who you're working for. And if, you know, prosecutors can prove that that you didn't, then you mm. can be charged for espionage. I yeah, mean, why not? Yeah. Well, our laws are still so messed up where um, even people who fly out to Syria to fight for ISIS can still come home and not necessarily be charged for it. Yeah. I think it's because... With that situation, it's very hard to prove into you know in a court of law what those people did. We kind of know what they did, yeah, but it's very hard to then prove it, right? Under like the standards of evidence of of you know like we we think you probably beheaded someone, but we don't have the evidence that would stand up in a courtroom. Yeah, and it's and I, and I'm not a legal expert, um, and I must try and chat to somebody at some point about this because it's something that really interests me. It's just like there's got to be some way where maybe in those cases you have to flip it around and so the person has to prove they weren't up to no good but uh <laughs> but but that's um i'm not a legal expert so i'm sure there'll be some lawyers going what the boop but you know <laughs> well again i'm 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 not a legal expert by any means also but i'm thinking like okay if the state department or the foreign office mm. puts out a notice which they do often like various countries like if you're an american yeah. or a british citizen do not travel to syria for these reasons yes and then if if then this official notice has been put out and there aren't like U.S. or British, like U.S. Airways, uh, British Airlines is not flying into Damascus anymore. And it's found that you went anyway mm. to this country. Mm. Like you have to prove why you were there and what yeah. you were doing there. Otherwise, yeah. 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 You get, a I don't know, a, a mandatory 10-year sentence for, for bad behavior. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, they might, yeah, maybe there's some way they can do it where if you violate that notice, you get, I don't know, a 10-year sentence or something which could be bigger. Right. Or something like that. I don't know. Not an automatic death penalty. I think that'd be a bit extreme. Just, no. On the death penalty, no. On, on one last thing I wanted to mention, because we were talking about human intelligence earlier, uh -huh. and obviously signals intelligence and intelligence from satellites, I think, have been a great advantage to America and the West for quite some time, an aerial reconnaissance too. And allegedly, China have now got a satellite hunting radar called the SLC-18, and it can detect satellites from a distance and identify and categorize them to form a radar database. 
and then help the Chinese respond accordingly. And apparently this technology could also then be exported to countries like Pakistan, Iran and North Korea. Um, all great fun places. And so so this, this, this technology, I suppose, represents a threat now to you know, that American sort of dominance with satellites and so on. And I can only assume that part of the reason why Space Force was created was potentially anticipating something like this. And I know the Space Force have a secretive space shuttle called the X-37B that has been going on quite a few secret missions over the last few years. And if you um, look at a, a website called the, uh, the Drive Stroke Warzone, they've certainly been sort of talking about the X-37B is quite an advanced piece of kit. So, yeah, so in a world of where human intelligence is getting harder, now signals intelligence potentially is as well, and satellite reconnaissance. And that's worrying. But um, I don't know. I'm, I'm assuming the Americans, you guys, have probably got something up your sleeves. But I don't know. What, what do you think on that? <laughs> yeah. So the issue here is if it gets exported to, like, North Korea. Mm. So let's say... The North Koreans are doing activities at a nuclear site or something, and they have this radar system that tells us when U.S. spy satellites are, or, or, or specifically which U.S. spy satellites are going to be overhead at what time. So you know, okay, there's an NRO bird in low Earth orbit mm. way up there. We know at this time not to do anything at this nuclear site. So that's sort of the issue there. And then you think, well, okay, well, couldn't you just move the orbit of the satellite? And you can but it uh patriot games sort of famously yeah was an early sense. example yeah. of what i'm about to get into here you, you you can move the orbital path of a satellite but it it uses the onboard fuel which is of course limited supply up there and it reduces the service life of the satellites doing that so you want to do it really sparingly it's a really big deal they did it in patriot games to find the ira cell there in yeah. libya so this is sort of the same concern i mean do we have countermeasures against this? Mm. Probably. Yeah. I don't know what they are. Yeah. And Stealth satellites. No one. <laughs> right. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's a that's a common thing that's yeah. been developed by the NRO. I mean, you think this is probably the most sensitive area of the U.S. intelligence community. I mean, the NRO, before it was its own, that's a national reconnaissance office, which... Uh, builds and manages U.S. spy satellites. And the NGA, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, analyzes a lot of the data mm, that they get. Mm. That's sort of the difference between those two agencies. Um, for the beginning of the NRO's life, it was sort of a joint office run between the U.S. Air Force and the CIA before it became its own separate agency. And for a long time, I want to say well into the 90s, it wasn't even disclosed that the NRO even existed super classified uh organization it's still rumored i i mentioned it in active measures part two the novel i'm still working on i gave it a a, a a name drop that there's sort of an underwater equivalent to the nro the national underwater reconnaissance office that is still like totally classified you're not even supposed to know that it exists but yeah this is like the most sensitive area of the u.s intelligence community and are there uh countermeasures to this probably i don't know what it is mm. to your point that mm. space force has that sort of special space shuttle that's lurking up there doing something i would say that this is more of an issue in peacetime than it is during an actual shooting war because a radar site having this thing on the ground would be blown up in like the first half hour yeah yeah totally you know 
Totally. I'm glad we got a chance to chat about it because it's um it's one to keep an eye on as well. Uh, be interesting to see if it does get exported to other countries. Um, so yeah. So shall we move on to Spy Entertainment? Yeah, we'll do uh, Andor. Andor. And then um, yeah. Spy, Spy Among, Among Friends, Friends which yeah, is yeah. yeah well, okay. I suppose with Spy Among Friends, it's not a lot to say other than there's a new show coming out based on the book by Ben McIntyre called Spy Among Friends. It's coming out in the UK on the eighth of December on ITVX and BritBox and on MGM Plus at some point in 2023. So again, get yourself a VPN and watch it on ITV for free. <laughs> but um, it's all about Kim Philby and his friendship with a fellow MI6 officer, Nicholas Elliott. And Nicholas Elliott was famous for interviewing Kim Philby on the day he managed to defect in Beirut. That's that's the Cambridge Spy Ring, right? Yeah, yeah, Cambridge Spy Ring. Yeah, yeah. Nicholas Elliott is an interesting one. I, I just, I, I don't know. I, I judge him a bit. I feel he's a bit of a twit. Um, but uh, how <laughs> so? We go. Well, there's a um, I, I'm still so there's an incident involving a British diver called Buster Crab. I don't know if you're familiar no, with I don't that think story. I've heard of that. And this is the British diver who who um, snuck under a Russian ship in Portsmouth and then disappeared uh-huh. under mysterious circumstances and uh, only for his headless body to be discovered, I think, a year later. Oh. And Nicholas Elliott was the one running him. And obviously the Russians were aware of this operation, which makes you think that either he, Kim Philby was aware of this operation or Nicholas Elliott may or may not have, um, I don't know, maybe uh, in cahoots with Russia as well. Interesting. Because he was the last man to see Kim Philby before he defected. Um, so my my counterintelligence uh, with no experience, uh, <laughs> you know, no physical experience, uh, my counter, uh, counterintelligence kind of radar is a bit like, hmm, this is suspicious. Yeah, that's odd. So they were good friends. They were very good friends, apparently. And apparently it's their friendship that blinded them. I'm less convinced of that personally, but I can't back that up with any evidence. And Ben McIntyre, who's a historian and much more successful than I am, has come up with a much more uh, <laughs> compelling story. <laughs> so, um, yes, yeah, so Spy Among Friends will be coming out shortly. Um, definitely worth a watch. It's got some great actors in it. And, um, yeah, I think it's, it's going to be uh, you know a pretty well-made show. So let's move on to Andor. So if anybody listening to this has not seen Andor, I suggest you pause now, tweet about how great this episode was, and then come back and listen later. Because yes. we're going to get into some spoiler territory. Well, at least Matt probably is. Because um, I, I only just finished um, Andor, and it's still a bit fresh in my head in certain places and a bit fuzzy in others, but I really thoroughly enjoyed it. There's some really cool um, sort of espionage tradecraft stuff going on. Um, and Stellan Skarsgård is a great actor. Plays Luthen. He's the man, if I could have made the Oleg Gordievsky story about 15 years ago, he's the guy I would have cast as Oleg Gordievsky. Uh, yeah. He's such a great actor. He'd be great. He'd yeah, be great. Yeah, he's probably a bit old for the character now, but I, I think Stellan Skarsgård's fantastic. So anyway... So Andor, what do you get, give us your yeah your thoughts on that? I mean, I've been I've been a Star Wars fan since I was a wee lad. Mm-hmm. My mom took me to see those special editions when they were put out in theaters. I think I was I was seven when the first when A New Hope came back out, and that was sort of my introduction to it. I've been a fan of it ever since. Um, and it's, I mean, I I was very happy to see see the Star Wars universe treated as a like prestige HBO mm. drama. Mm. I mean, to me, like I think the world is big enough. The Star Wars world is is big enough. And now that you have a bunch of Disney money behind it, you have the space where, yeah, you can do more sort of 
goofy, fun kid stuff like the Boba Fett show. And that's great. And that's valid. And there's room for that. And there's room for, for, you know, these people who have grown up with Star Wars who are now adults who want more sort of serious kind of yeah. fair, you know? Yeah. And if you think about this, this huge franchise, I mean, yeah, Star Wars is for kids, but I mean, it's also for everyone too. I mean, like kids don't spend $600 on a replica lightsaber. Kids don't spend multiple thousands of dollars to go to Disney World, you know, on vacation. Um, so I, I think it's good to have that sort of diversity. Mm. Um, and we got that. And I think it just goes to show what sort of a story you can tell in that world when you put competent people with really good taste, like Tony Gilroy, uh, who did, you know, a lot of the Bourne movies. And Michael Clayton, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, he did. He did Michael Clayton too. Um, and 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 Beirut, that mm. movie with John Hamm. I like Beirut actually, but there was a. I liked yeah. it too. I yeah. liked it too. You want to talk about like spies? How good spies are recruited and motivated by mm. by ideology, and come to that conclusion that they're going to put their life on the line for something greater than themselves and really believe in it. Mm. You know, Andor shows that fully. You know, we're mm. talking about Stellan Skarsgård's character Luthen or even how Andor, Diego Luna's character, sort of over the course of the show, comes to accept his place in this mm. rebellion that's breaking out across the galaxy. Really kind of um really kind of fascinating stuff. And I think I think the show does a great job of showing the banality of evil in the Empire, in in the Empire's intelligence services, you know? Yeah, Gilroy's definitely read Eichmann in in Jerusalem, the way it just depicts these people who are just doing their job, mm. you know, who 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 aren't who aren't evil, so to speak, um, but are are furthering a fascist cause nonetheless, and how they allow themselves to sort of detach to 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 sort of take that part of their brain out that thinks I'm complicit in this awful thing and think. Mm. I'm just working for the Imperial Standards and Measurements office. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I'm just a guy in a chair who 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 just takes orders. You know, you really sort of see that well. I love Cyril. Yeah, he was the corporate security officer who then that raid goes bad and yeah. Yeah, yeah. Cyril's such an interesting character who yeah, basically um got the shit for an operation going wrong. Um and but was still very obsessive and had a real strong sense of I suppose justice mm -hmm. from his point of view. Um, and just couldn't give up and gone to great personal risk to try and find Cassian Andor. Um, and I thought he was really interesting. And obviously Stellan Skarsgård as Luthien Rule, who, um, yeah, is a is the head of the, is he the head of the resistance? He's sort of a key figure in the resistance, isn't he? He's, He's sort of the, the, the head of a very prominent rebel cell mm. at this point, you know, and then, yeah. um, yeah, but that, that, that monologue from him, I think it's at the end of episode 10, um, where that one, there's a mole inside the Imperial Security That's Bureau it. who comes here to tell him, like, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. I have a family. And in the most threatening way that never actually contains an overt threat, says, like, you're going nowhere. There's the, the, that monologue that ends with, like, I need all the heroes I can yeah. get. Yeah. Um, some of the most brilliant writing in yeah. in yeah. Star Wars. And nice tradecraft too, because he um had to go into yes. a lift to get a Bluetooth earpiece to then plug it into his ear to then for Stellan yeah. Skarsgård starts talking to him. I always love those kind of things. Something something else to your point mm. there that I really like what the show does, it 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 shows that real sense of 
personal danger mm. that you undertake in rebelling, in conducting intelligence operations against this huge, all-knowing fascistic regime. Mm. You know, that like there's lines where it talks about, you know, like sending and receiving messages is incredibly dangerous, you know, and you don't do it without intent and care and cause, you know, like when Cassian comes in to the heist on Aldani for the Imperial base, like the rest of the crew is like, mm. I don't really know who this guy is and mm. I don't know if I want you here. Like it, it's treated in a serious way that like this is life and death, you know, like it's not a game. Mm. Um and I, I just love to see that done in in the Star Wars universe. Yeah, you know? yeah. And if anything, I mean, it's one of the better spy dramas out of all the current crop of spy dramas, if you want to put it in that category. Yeah. Oh yeah, like it, it, it's 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 not just it's not just a good Star Wars show. It's yeah. a good show. Period. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, yeah, it's much. Yeah. It just what other shows make easy, it makes it very hard. Um, so yeah, like the covert contacts and stuff like that. I I liked it a lot for that. And and I think I said this yeah. before, the music is so effective in that show. Um, and uh, it kind of I I'm a big fan of the 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 Battlestar Galactica remake that came out in the early two thousands. Um, and it was sort of reminding me a little bit of that, uh-huh. that the, uh, the feeling of the show very much felt a bit like that sort of, uh, not the seventies Battlestar yeah. Galactica, which I think most people would like to forget, but the early two thousands one was really good. Um, allegedly <laughs> they're trying to remake that, which, um, is a bit sad, but there we go. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that was a great show. And, um, I remember, have you, you seen Battlestar Galactica? No, no. I have not. I I, I, I should, but I, I have not. Ah, oh, well, do check it out if you get a chance. If anything, it, the miniseries is fantastic, and the miniseries really caught that post-9-11 feel really well and very effectively. Um, and then I think it's season three. They kind of turn a um, bit of a spoiler, but they kind of um, end up in a situation where we deal with a rebellion mm-hmm. um and it was at the time the iraq war was going on and so you could say it was quite subversive in some ways as tv um but it kind of made you understand um how rebellions work and why they happen and yeah. so on and you had a bit of um uh, is it blue green on blue attacks where uh, um somebody posing as a police officer goes and kills other police officers or military people stuff like that yeah that kind of stuff was going on in that show so definitely if you haven't seen battlestar galactica the early 2000s one not the 70s one um check it out there are a few other podcasts that i've listened to that have tony gilroy on and talking through the show mm. um and one of them he had a note where he talked about how he studied how rebel leaders often start out as really great inspirational awesome figures like he used mao Mm. and even stalin early on as an example like the rebel heist in aldani was based on a real life heist that um stalin did in georgia in the early days of the bolshevik revolution yeah um talk about how how these larger than life figures sort of start out in really sort of inspirational ways and then often somewhat go bad you know going back to examples Mm. of mao and stalin and i think that sort of tells us where he's probably going with luthan stellan starsgard's character in season two yeah i i can see that because it was me thinking as well like um it it uh, it was sort of there's a bin laden feeling about him sure yeah (laughs) and that made me uncomfortable a little bit it was just like "Mm." i i think that's a perfectly fair comparison you know and i think Mm. it's probably intentional you know i mean yeah yeah, some we consider 
bin Laden a terrorist, there's a lot of people out there who consider him a rebel. Mm. You know, it's mm. it's very mm. much depends on on who you on on what side of the coin you're looking at, and and if you're if you're writing these kind of a characters, I mean, I do it with with the Active Measures novels. You know, I don't if I'm dealing with an an IRGC officer or someone, you know, I don't write them like, haha, here's my scowling villain. You know, to them, they're the hero. They're they're the good guy. And when you're in that scene with this character and you're trying to to show the audience the world through their eyes, you have to look at them that way. And I think it just comes across as a more realistic depiction of humanity. Yeah, indeed. And 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 it's a I suppose there's a warning in there, isn't it? Because like it's all about this idea of a greater good, and that can corrupt people mm-hmm. occasionally, can't it? Sure. So you've got to be really careful with, with uh, you know, doing bad things in the name of a greater good. But yeah. <laughs> one one other thought just popped into my head as you were talking about Stalin. Um, I was watching some World War Two in color documentary with my wife, and they showed a historic picture of Stalin from his younger years. And my wife said, well, he was quite hot, wasn't he? He was. <laughs> so apparently Stalin was hot. He was, so. yeah. I've seen that picture. <laughs> uh, yeah, because yeah, it's on the cover of a biography of him, isn't it? He's mm-hmm. got a sort of like moustache and things. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. <laughs> so, so Stalin was hot. There we are. Yeah. <laughs> Oh dear. Well, uh, um, we probably should wrap up, but uh, sure. Christmas is coming up, and and is. Are you got any interesting plans for Christmas? Any films? I noticed you've got a, a die-hard kind of advent calendar. Oh box. yeah, you noticed that. Yeah. So yeah. So if you're listening at home and don't can't actually see us talking, uh, on the bookcase <laughs> over my shoulder there is an advent calendar, and it's Nakatomi Tower from Die Hard, and at the top of it there's a little tiny Hans Gruber, and we're recording this on December first. So Hans Gruber is beginning his 25-day descent to the bottom of Nakatomi Tower, and every day I'll bring him down a little it's bit. It's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's brilliant. <laughs> and, oh, man, yeah. No, I've, I've um, been to Fox Plaza that was the Nakatomi building, and, uh, in fact, there's a really great shopping center uh, in Century City now where you get an amazing view of the building. Yeah. So last Christmas I was in the States, and... Uh, um, it did my pilgrimage to the Nakatomi building just to, yeah. you know, see it. Because <laughs> I do love Die Hard. It's one of my favorite Christmas movies. And there's a debate about whether it is or isn't a Christmas movie. To me, it is. Um, actually, some lethal weapon to some extent. But um, I've kind of gone off Mel Gibson these days. But Yeah, probably smart. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, I mean, December is mm. always sort of a crazy month for me. Mm. I mean, my birthday is on the 15th. Oh, brilliant. Well, happy birthday to Uh Thank you. Uh, and the last couple of years I was in, I was in grad school. Mm, so mm. it's always like right in the middle of finals week too, you know? Um, and this is the first year in a while that I don't, I don't have that. Yeah. yeah. So that'll be a fun month. Do you have anything interesting going on? Well, I've suddenly got a lot of work, um, <laughs> which is good. Good. Um, yeah, it's been kind of crazy. Um, but no, so I'm, I'm spending time with my father-in-law, uh, and my sister-in-law, um, and um, potentially my wife's uh, cousins on Christmas Day for a nice lunch. One of my wife's cousins is a really good cook, um, so so looking forward to that potentially. Um, hopefully, I try. I always I have always found 
in the last few years, especially as a sort of film freelancer and stuff, it's very sometimes difficult to take time off and have proper time off because usually as a freelancer, you spend half your time off worrying about will I ever work again and stuff like that. So it kind of becomes a buzzkill and certainly had a bit of a summer a bit like that. Um, And as relaxing as my summer was, it wasn't fully relaxing. But what I like about Christmas, it really is relaxing generally if you embrace it because um, most of the world just shuts down during that time and no one cares and very rarely does anybody chase you for anything during those two weeks. And it's very rare that you get a two weeks where no one's chasing you about something. So in probably the last 10 years or so, I've kind of (laughs) um, religiously taken Christmas off just to wind down and get a proper chill out period um so i generally watch lots of movies last year i did a bit of a michael mann bender i'm kind of in the mood for another michael nice. mann bender to be honest i don't know why but um in fact there's a cinema near me that's doing a michael manathon where you can spend uh 600 minutes watching quite a few michael mann films in succession and i love michael mann but i don't think i could spend 600 minutes in a cinema um overnight watching what is it it's thief uh manhunter which i love love um heat i love then it's collateral and miami vice and i I love all those films but i just don't see myself being able to sit in a cinema i could see myself at home doing that over a few days but (laughs) not in one city yeah um i think if i think if i saw that heat was playing in a cinema i would have to drop everything oh yeah see it just get the chance to see it on on a big screen. Yeah, yeah, we have this wonderful cinema in London called the Prince Charles. Um, mm-hmm. Prince Charles is, is cinema is in uh, Leicester Square, and they show older movies. And the Heat comes on fairly regularly now, especially the definitive edition of it as well. Um, and honestly, I went to see it not long ago in May, about May time in the cinema, and it was the first time I'd seen it in the cinema since it came out. Because Heat for me, when I first saw that in the cinema in the nineties, really just. I don't know. I, it just was a bit of a game changer for me personally. I love that film. Um, I was still trying to work um, out if it's my oh, yeah. favorite Michael Mann movie, but I love it. I think it's Michael Mann's best movie. Whether it's my favorite, I'm still not sure because I do love Manhunter. Um, that yeah. firefight, that that, mm. that 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 bank heist. Oh there yeah. Is, yeah. I would argue still to this day the best firefight ever put on screen ever. And it's the sound that does yeah, it. Yeah, it's the sound and it's the tactics because I find a lot of mm-hmm. movies just get into generic action where somebody in the decision-making process either just doesn't have any actual knowledge of how these things happen or doesn't have an interest. Um, and it right. tends to lead to very bland... Or, or they break the laws of physics and start doing really stupid things which no human being right. can do. And it's always those two things that disappoint me in an action sequence. So, yeah, yeah, I think Heat is fantastic. Um, and I think probably uh, Ronin, the 1998 film, has got some really great action in it as well. Yeah. Oh, that's a good one, too. That's a good one, too. I haven't seen that in mm, years. Mm. That's set at Christmas. Is that a Christmas movie? Probably not, but it is set at Christmas. So, <laughs> so, you know, so yeah, yeah, it's a good film, too. But uh, but there we go. Well, um, I wish you happy holidays and a happy birthday. And You as well. Thank you for thank joining you. me. And um, we'll be back in January. Um and between now and then, figure out whether we'll just we'll have a busy December to talk about, or whether we might try and do a recap of the year. But we'll we'll see we'll see how it goes. We'll see. But, uh, but we hopefully, go. a lot of spies don't get arrested over Christmas. Well, yeah, especially during the two week period, I try and chill out. <laughs> right, <laughs> the world's right, gonna stop right. for those two weeks. <laughs> cool. Thanks, Matt. All Take right. Care. Thanks for listening. This is Secrets and Spies.